It's a do new documentary about ancient cities. This is Angkor Wat in Cambodia. Yet just a century later, the city lay deserted, okay, given up to the jungle. But why? Throughout history, there are few examples of cities being totally abandoned. One key factor is known. Throughout Angkor's history, the Khmer had waged war with their neighbors. In the early years of Angkor, the Vietnamese Chams were the Khmer's sworn enemies. Most of the temple walls around the capital depict epic battles against the Chams. Maybe they just destroyed the city. But by the time of Jodagwan's visit, the main threat came from the emerging Thai kingdom of Siam as it expanded into Cambodia. Here it comes. Recently, during the war with Siam, whole villages have been laid waste. In the diplomat's eyes, the Khmer army was ill-prepared for war. Soldiers move about unclothed and barefoot. In the right hand is carried a lance, in the left a shield. They have no bows, no missiles, no breastplates, and no helmets. Generally speaking, these people have neither discipline nor strategy. Inscriptions show that in 1431, the Thais sacked Angkor. They looted everything possible, enslaving much of the population, including the king's entire harem, and carried them off to Thailand. of Angkor was slowly reabsorbed into the jungle from which it had emerged five centuries before. Henri Muo wrote in 1860, One must ask, what has become of this powerful race, so civilized and enlightened to create these gigantic works? The conventional explanation is that the empire's rulers lost their grip on power, and the Thais simply scared them off. But the mystery of Angkor takes another twist. Today, archaeologists believe that there were other factors at work. Charles Hyam points to the great builder king, Jayavarman VII. Perhaps because of the excesses of Jayavarman VII, who, who clearly was a, a, a builder with a frenzy uh, of activity, and uh, he may well, it said, and I, it might be true, that he exhausted the resources of the state and it went into a decline. Jayavarman VII was the first Buddhist king after several hundred years of Hindu worship. This more compassionate religion may have given the Khmer cause to reflect on the excesses of their kings. 
And I wonder whether, in fact, the, the, the slow decline that may well have set in was the result of um, a lack of belief out in the fields there that the king was, in fact, a deity, and, and, and that this vital uh, link between the two began to fray. Jacques Boucher theorizes that while the Khmer's success can be attributed to the harnessing of water, it could also have led to their undoing. Such was the fine balance of nature that if irrigation and the storage of water were not kept up, they could easily fall into disrepair. The water system was very fragile because it was so sophisticated. And the problem is, if it's not well maintained, it could easily become blocked by sediment. The kings who came after Jayavarman VII were less interested in grand building plans. It's also possible they stopped maintaining the intricate water system. Deforestation was also a likely contributor. So much jungle had been cut back for rice growing that undoubtedly the rivers and canals would have silted up, which in turn would have led to an ecological disaster for the Khmer. Christophe Potier believes the clues are obvious. The pond is very clear there with the water. At the end of Encore, it's pieces of the forest should have been very, very rare. So deforestation is, a new, is not a new problem, it's, a, it's an old one. It is most likely that it was a combination of these factors that led the Khmer to abandon their once great city. What remained of the Khmer court re-established itself on the banks of the Mekong, near Cambodia's present-day capital of Phnom Penh. We're not talking about the actual collapse and total demise of the civilization. What happened was that they moved sensibly to the east, down to the Mekong River, and away from the, the, the Thais. Now completely Buddhist, renouncing material wealth, the Khmer would never again embrace the lofty heights they had in Angkor. For 400 years, Angkor lay derelict and forgotten until its rediscovery by Henri Mouo in 1860. Today, Angkor is recognized as a wonder of the world. In Cambodia's new era of stability, archaeologists from around the world continue to make fresh discoveries. At last, a world lost to the jungle is re-emerging. A major metropolis that for over half a millennium dominated a thriving empire. One of the greatest cities the world has ever known.
For centuries, archaeologists have tried to find the legendary city of Troy, but without success. Troy is famous as the scene of the Trojan War, the fight for the world's most beautiful woman, Helen, and the ruse that won her back, the Trojan horse. It's a story that's been told and retold by poets and actors for thousands of years. But is it real? Did the city of Troy actually exist? A century ago, a pioneer archaeologist claimed he'd found the site of Troy. But while the public was satisfied, the experts were not. They said it was impossible to match the clues in the ground with a story that may only be fantasy. Now, a team of archaeologists has returned to the same site. In a dig that spans the past 15 years, they've made discoveries which are both dramatic and controversial. But at the heart of their work, one question persists. Have they found the lost world of Troy? <coughs> At first glance, it doesn't look like much. Nestling among remote farmland, a small hill baking in the Mediterranean sun. But this hill is in fact a gateway to the ancient past. This is Hisarlik in northwest Turkey. It stands near the Dardanelles Strait, a few miles from the scene of the World War I Gallipoli campaign. Every year, thousands of tourists come to Hisarlik in the belief that they're visiting one of the most famous sites of antiquity, the city of Troy. But many experts take a different view. They say no one knows if Troy ever existed. And even if it did, there's no proof it stood here. For 15 years, an archaeological team has worked at Hisarlik. Their findings may resolve the issue once and for all. Investigating the site is not easy. It involves uncovering multiple layers of human settlement. These date from 3000 BC, the Early Bronze Age, to late Roman times, around 600 AD. It's a delicate task, excavating layer upon layer of remains.
23 Anunnaki origins. <coughs> 23 Anunnaki origins and the We're flood mysteries. We're tons of polygons here. What's going on? Where's Regina? Hi, I'm LaDonna. I invest in Invesco QQQ, a fund that gives me access to NASDAQ 100 innovations like real-time CGI. Okay. CGI. Yeah, it's, oh, don't worry. I got it. The Sumerian people once inhabited the region near the Persian Gulf known as Iran. Greeks called this country Mesopotamia, which means the land between the rivers, as the Euphrates and Tigris, rising in Anatolia, flowed through Syria and Iraq before discharging into the Persian Gulf. Simurum is the name given to the northern region by the Semitic peoples later, like the word Sumerian, which was later used for the southern region. According to the Sumerians, their land was called Kiengi, or Land of the Lord, N. Sometime after 4000 BC, the Sumerians moved to this coastal area, but it's unclear from where they came. There is no connection between their language and any other language spoken in the region. After sailing upriver from the Persian Gulf, they migrated inland from the coastal area. On the other hand, Sumerians came from the northeast of Mesopotamia and traveled down the river to the south. Simurum would indicate that the Sumerians once lived in the northern region. The Sumerians must have encountered people who had already settled in the Persian Gulf area for a long time when they entered, since a few cities had names that did not match Sumerians, but were most likely derived from an unknown language. Examples include Uruk, Esnuna, and Shurupak. Similarly, Buranuna, the name of the Euphrates River, makes no sense in Sumerian whereas Edigna, the name of the Tigris River, might be explained as the Blue River. Farmers had established small settlements along these two great rivers during the 5th millennium BC. To irrigate agricultural crops, they diverted water from rivers through canals. There was little rainfall in this area, and the sun burned mercilessly during the summer months, so everyone lived entirely off flood water from the rivers. The rivers could be dangerous, though, as the land was flat, and there was always the danger that the river would overflow its banks and change its course, inundating new areas and destroying crops and water supplies. The great rivers carried silt through the plain, forming swamps along the Persian coast. Here the inhabitants grew cane for making little reed houses for the gods. God Enki was responsible for this domain. He brought civilization to the Sumerians and lived underground in a freshwater residence, the Abzu, located below the Earth's surface but above the ocean's saltwater expanse. Enki's main temple was built in Eridu, a settlement much closer to the coast. 
Archaeologists discovered a prehistoric temple and dozens of fish remains, indicating that fish offerings were made to this temple's deity. During the second millennium BC, the Sumerian kinglists recorded Eridu as the oldest inhabited city in the world. A mythical record of the ancestors of the Sumerian deities is included here, followed by historical kings confirmed by other sources. Various Sumerian towns exercised kingship for a time after the throne descended from heaven. The king list reports that a flood came over the land after Eridu, and various places were assigned the kingship successively, such as Sipar and Shurupak. There is also a connection between this story and the flood story found in Genesis 6, 6-8. As people misbehaved, God decided to wipe them out, and only Noah, a man who had lived righteously, was spared. Noah was given precise instructions on how to build a big ship, an ark, from gopher wood and pitch. As per Sumerian mythology, Enlil, not Yahweh, decided to destroy his people, while Enki saved a righteous man and life on earth by taking the initiative. To save himself, his family, and all the animals, Enki warned Ziusutra, the king of Shurupak, to build a ship. For six days and seven nights, this vessel endured a terrible storm. Deluges and windstorms continued, leveling the land. Like a woman in labor, the windstorm and deluge ended their struggle on the seventh day. The storm stilled in seven days as the sea calmed, and the deluge ceased. Ziusudra released a dove, but it returned to the boat after finding nowhere to land. Ziusudra released a swallow after some time, but the bird returned, and he released a raven after some time. As the waters ebbed, the raven flew off. After eating, preening, and leaving droppings, it did not turn around. Survivors realized that the land had been exposed once the water subsided. Thanking their gods for their survival, they left the ship. Ziusudra was rewarded with eternal life by the gods for his outstanding merits. Uruk then exercised its kingship, and the king list records the names of its rulers, including the legendary Gilgamesh. According to the king's list, the kingship spread to twenty other cities after the flood, the first being Kish in the northern region. The first actual city of history began as a small settlement near the Euphrates River, near the Persian Gulf. There were a minimum of 20,000 people living in Uruk by about 3,600 BC, and a considerable rampart protected the city. 1. The City of Uruk Among all the city names, Uruk endures the longest, having been preserved until today as Iraq. The current Iraqi name for Uruk is Waka, related to the antique name Uruk. Uruk's inhabitants had built a new rampart around 3,400 BC with a circumference of 9.5 kilometers and an inner wall of 5 meters thick and an outer wall with pinnacles and observation posts. Agriculture and horticulture were presumably carried out within the city's walls. In myth, Gilgamesh built this city and its citizens. Art influencers on Instagram have a deep, dark secret about how they make money selling their art. And I want to show it to you because if you're clever, you can actually use it to make money selling your art off of all their efforts. Let me show you how.
So I'm sure you've been to Instagram and you see artists sharing their work, abstract art, graffiti, street art, portraits, illustrations, drawings, stuff like that. Well, here's the funny thing. They go and share this on Instagram and then what they do is they make a five figure a month income or more from selling their art to their followers. And they keep most of that income as pure profit. Pretty clever way to make money, right? Well, I'm gonna show you what's an even cleverer way than that. And the ironic thing is, it's a lot easier because it doesn't require any influence or power. Doesn't require any followers whatsoever. Doesn't require an upfront investment. You can do this from home. It doesn't require staff either. The catch is, I can't explain it to you all in a YouTube ad. So if you click on the upper right-hand corner on mobile, or the lower left-hand corner, if you're on desktop, I'll tell you how to do it. I'll even show you everything step-by-step. Step. The only catch is, I can't explain it to you here. And if you're a little bit skeptical, you should be, but take a look at all the people that are flashing across the screen right now. They click on the exact same link and have gone on to do exactly what you're looking to do. Look at all those results, okay? So figure out how they did this, click the link, that's it. would walk up to me and just be like, what the f*** is in your mug? And I would just tell them, it's mud. I was drinking tons of coffee. I was jittery, I was anxious. It became really obvious to me that my coffee addiction was more something that was prescribed to me by culture than something that I wanted to continue. And I met more and more people who had a similar relationship to caffeine. So I ended up swapping it out for this masala chai I found. I added lion's mane for focus and cognitive function, cacao for mood, energy, and of course flavor, chaga and reishi for immune support, turmeric and cordyceps for physical performance, cinnamon and a pinch of salt to help the flavors pop. This drink that really changed my life ultimately became it, and we would love for you to try it. proud of it. According to Gilgamesh's epos, Uruk's growth resulted from a vast trading network. There is evidence of Uruk culture on cylinder seals, measuring jugs, and architecture, which suggests that the inhabitants played a significant role. In the north, they traveled to Anatolia, today's Turkey. In the east, they founded the city of Susa. In the west, they reached Egypt via the Persian Gulf and the Red Sea. The Urukians came to the north of Mesopotamia to participate in the trade in copper and silver, which had its center in Anatolia with its abundant copper and silver mines. A coppersmith's workshop was discovered in Uruk, along with ceramics from northern Mesopotamia, Anatolia, and Transcaucasia. Archaeologists attribute this Uruk expansion to the fact that they followed well-established trade routes along which donkey caravans carried commodities, copper, silver, and precious stones. Their tools, knowledge of production processes, architecture, eating habits, and gods were taken by the Urukians. In some regions, they formed enclaves amid autochthonous people. In other regions, they settled in areas with no population. The Uruk colonists built a substantial settlement with dead straight roads surrounded by a solid wall around 3200 BC. Archaeologists from the Netherlands have excavated a substantial settlement of the Uruk expansion, 
Abu Bakabira, upstream of the Euphrates. This region was likely chosen because it was advantageous for sheep farming and was situated in an area with sufficient rainfall to support agriculture without irrigation. Sheep and goats could be pastured in open fields, and flax could have been grown by immigrants. In Uruk, wool and fibers were highly sought after because the textile industry was a primary source of employment, which required large quantities of sheep's wool and flax. It lasted about 200 years, but around 3200 BC, the expansion abruptly ended for unknown reasons. Some places were abandoned altogether, such as Habuba Kabira. However, in other regions, like Subatu in northern Mesopotamia, the Urukians were absorbed by the native peoples or went their own way. Egypt and Mesopotamia lost contact, and the Elamites seized Susa in the east. There was a divergent development in northern Mesopotamia due to its isolation from the rest of the region. There had been a breakdown in the trade connection. Northern Mesopotamia's expansion may have ended with the arrival of Semitic nomads who penetrated the plain from the north and drove a wedge between the north and south. Despite this, the city of Uruk thrived as never before after the end of the Uruk expansion. Uruk shifted the trade routes to the Persian Gulf to maintain trade routes once the north's contacts were broken. Due to this seaway, merchants became familiar with the civilization developed along the Indus River, enabling India to prosper. Indus civilization might be called Meluha, according to the written sources. As the script of the Indus region has yet to be deciphered, it is unclear how relations with this faraway land developed. Meluha was the name of a little town in southern Mesopotamia during the third millennium. This colony could have been established by merchants of the Indus culture, since there is also a cylinder seal from Ur, which was once owned by a Meluha interpreter. See chapter 8, figure 8.3. We see pictures of typical Indian water buffaloes on these cylinder seals, an animal that had been imported from India to Mesopotamia somehow. The water buffalo featured prominently on cylinder seals during the reign of King Sargon of Akkad, 2334-2279 BC, and the king boasted that Maluha-bound ships moored at Akkad Keys. Uruk's Temples Uruk was initially divided into two districts. There was a sanctuary of the... No one tells stories better than Audible, the home of storytelling. From motivation and comedy, to true crime and memoirs, and so much more. Audiobooks, podcasts, and originals. That's Audible, the home of storytelling. Hey there, Aaron Chase from $5DollarDinners.com, and I had the privilege of working with Grant Baldwin last year on speaking, and I learned so much from him. I learned about storytelling, and I learned about how to read an audience and how to move an audience both through the story and through the point that you're making with the story, and I also learned about stage presence, how to best work from the actual stage and where you are on the stage and connecting with your audience 
from the stage. And I am just so grateful for the insight and the wisdom that he shared with me last year as I was looking to improve my speaking abilities and reaching and connecting with those in the audience. the God of Heaven, on in the western district of Kulab. According to legend, he was an old native god who built his temple on a terrace 11 meters high. Due to its gypsum plaster walls, archaeologists refer to it as the White Temple. A star was used to write his name in Sumerian, a general sign of divinity such as God of Heaven. There must have been a temple to Inanna, a complex of substantial freestanding buildings in the eastern district of Uruk, which the written texts refer to as Eana or Eana, literally House of Heaven. However, details are sparse. It is estimated that Temple D measured no less than 80 by 50 meters by the time it was built around 3400 BC. Mosaic Court, or Pillar Temple, was the entrance to this building. It was probably not a temple, but a prestigious inner court with a peristyle leading to the rest of the sacred precinct. This building was called Mosaic Court by the diggers because it was decorated with geometric figures made of baked cones inserted into the walls. As with the previous building, this one had enormous dimensions, measuring 50 by 22 meters. Cuneiform tablets dating back to 3400 BC have been found in Temple C. The tablets detail specific goods delivered, indicating a thriving economy. The excavators have named the buildings on the Ayana complex temples, but some scholars...